Support for the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast comes from HBO Documentary Films, presenting All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, directed by Academy Award-winning filmmaker Laura Poitras. The film is an emotional and interconnected story about internationally renowned artist and activist Nan Golden, told through her slideshows, intimate interviews, groundbreaking photography, and rare footage of her personal fight to hold the Sackler family accountable for the overdose crisis. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed won the prestigious Golden Lion for Best Film at the 79th Venice International Film Festival. It is only the second documentary to ever win this award in the festival's history. It's for your Academy Award consideration Best Documentary Feature, and I will editorialize here for a minute. It is one of the best, if not the best, film of the year, documentary or otherwise. This thing blew me away, and we're going to have Laura on the podcast very soon. Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, the executive editor of Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. Today I'll be interviewing Daniel Rohr, the director of the documentary Navalny, which is currently streaming on HBO Max and made a huge splash and made some real significant news as well when it premiered at Sundance last winter. Alexei Navalny is, uh, to put it bluntly, Vladimir Putin's worst nightmare. He's the charismatic, fearless opposition leader in Russia who's mastered social media proved that he could rally the Russian people in protest against Putin's government. So much so that in the summer of 2020, the Kremlin tried to assassinate Navalny. And they would have succeeded if it wasn't for Navalny's wife, Yulia, getting him out of the country and to a hospital in Berlin. And this is where Daniel's documentary comes in. Daniel shot during those two months, Navalny was recuperating in Germany before returning to Russia, where he was immediately arrested and has been behind bars ever since. It's a gripping documentary, and it was interesting to hear Daniel talk about how the film often felt like a thriller because that's what it was like to film in those two months that he was with Navalny. It was a really fun conversation. It was great to get an update on Navalny himself and the family. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's start here. When did you get involved in the saga? Like, when did you, when did, you know, obviously you had to go back and do some of the backstory here, but when, when did this become a film that you, you, were, you were making? You know, so often, Chris, the art of documentary, people talk about it as the art of being in the right place at the right time. And I think this specific film really embodies that notion. I was working on a completely different film with uh, a few of my colleagues. We were in Ukraine at the time. That film fell apart. We didn't have a film to make. And so in October of 2020, I found myself in Vienna, Austria. And I was with Christo Grozev and Odessa Ray, one of the film's producers. And I was trying to figure out, should I go back home? Should I stick around for a few more weeks? And that's when Christo came in one morning and he said, you know that Navalny guy? I said, yeah, I know that Navalny guy. He says, almost like a whisper, he leans in and he says, I think I might have a lead in who tried to poison him. And I was like, Christo, who's making that movie? And, he's, and, and it was really because of Christo's intrepid investigate, investigative work that we were able to go and meet with Alexei. And I had the opportunity to pitch him because here's a guy who is a media genius. This is a guy who has tens of millions of, of social media followers across YouTube and Instagram and TikTok. And so why does he need a documentarian to help him get his message out, so to speak? And what I had to explain to him was the value and virtue of not social media, but of cinema, which is not something he experienced. Um, and that first meeting was a success. I was able to communicate a vision that I had, and uh, we started filming almost the next day. Two follow-ups on that. When, 
he's he's already been poisoned. He's back in he's back in. At that point, when I met him, he had probably been out of his coma for five or six weeks, so okay. he was still rehabilitating from his. Had it moved? Had it moved to the 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 ruraler parts? Uh, he had moved to the more rural parts of Europe. I'm curious. I wonder if you could elaborate. What you know. Because it is something that it, he is someone who his leadership and his message has been something that's so on social media. I wonder if you could elaborate on a little bit about what specifically you did pitch him in terms of what he could do with this and why this was important. Yeah, that's that's a really great question. Essentially, I had to manifest the chutzpah to convince this guy to let me follow him around. And my vision that I presented was, was very straightforward. What I ex- expressed was... I was basically like, you're going to go back to Russia. You've you've committed to that. Within, he had at that point. He, at that point, he had announced that he was going back. It was just a matter of time. And so we, I figured we had, a, you know, maybe four or five months. I didn't realize that he was going back in two months. So we had a very compressed timeline. But I said, you're going back to Russia. You're likely going to be arrested, and you're likely going to be sitting in jail. And this is not this is not new information. He obviously understood this. And I said, what a documentary can offer you, if done right, is a vehicle to keep your name, your plight, your mission in the global consciousness long after you are imprisoned. Unlike a YouTube video, which is on a, a short fuse, it comes out in a week or, or maybe a month after it's finished, it takes a year to make a documentary. And so this could be something that you can anchor events around all over the world and people around the world can engage with you, your family, your story like never before. And I think he understood that. But in addition to that, Navalny was just very interested in being a documentary subject. Some documentary subjects don't want to be documentary subjects. And it's like for whatever reason, they are thrusted into this situation that they don't really want to be in. And that apprehension and skepticism comes across in the film. Similarly, Navalny's enthusiasm for the, for the work, for the, the project of being in a film comes across in the movie. He really liked having these big cameras around. He thought it was really cool when we get the drones up in the sky and I, you know, tell him the, you know, I want to get this whatever shot. He really enjoyed it. And I think that that sense of enjoyment and collaboration is, is why we were able to craft this intimate portrait because he really didn't mind having us around. And, and he sort of became uh, a friend to us whom's feet I could hold to the fire. There was nothing I couldn't ask him. Um, and he was a very good sport about letting me t- talk and ask him about sort of uncomfortable things. Um, and I think all of those complexities make the film uh, what it is. The first question that you ask him in the in the movie, I don't know if that's the first question. I'm sure it's something that had come up before. You, you ask him... Um, the, the, the question, the first question in the movie, yeah. I ask him, I say, Alexei, if you are killed, if this does happen, what message do you leave behind for the Russian people? And his reply, you probably know it. You bet, your editor's here too. I'm sure you've seen this now. What, what, is, what does he say in reply? He says, He says, Oh, Daniel, no, no. Don't ask me these boring questions. We're going to make this film a nice thriller. And for next movie, when I die, you can make boring memorial. I'm curious because it does seem to be, it's a fun little bit, but um, and it seems to be something you lean into. But it does feel to a certain degree you're leaning into. That was advice maybe you had already had to a certain degree, but it feels like to a certain degree on a filmmaking front, you're leaning into some of that stuff too, is, is, is this moment in time where he is in the midst of a heroic act and also an uncertain future that is a little bit more dramatic in, in how you're going to present it. 
I, I mean, absolutely. I, I think that's a that's a smart read. But before I speak to that, I want to just tell you the first question I asked him in our four fourteen hour interview. He sat down, and the first question I asked him right out of the gate was, "Alexei, what's your favorite movie?" Mm-hmm. And he says, "Terminator Two. <laughs> Everything you need to know in life you can learn from Terminator Two. Um, but to speak to the other uh, aspect of your question. As I said, here's a guy who is brilliant at social media. He's brilliant at manipulating a news cycle. He knows how to get attention and make his story told. In addition to that, he's a politician, and he's a very skilled politician. So whenever a politician invites you in with cameras, you must presume and understand that you are in some way being weaponized to further political aim and ambition. And being a filmmaker, you have your own agenda and prerogative that you are chasing. And so it's this little dance that takes place between the filmmaker and the subject. And I think that tension's really interesting. Certainly in this film, that conflict existed. Navalny was not the director of the movie. He did not have editorial control of the movie. When we sat down, the first conversation I had with him, editorial control and final cut and all of these things came up in the first conversation. I said to his team, that there is the conductor of a symphony, the captain of a ship, and the director of a film. And the director of the film at the end of the day calls the shots. While we will proceed in the spirit of collaboration, if we reach that impasse at the end of the day, we will go in the direction I think is best. And his team obviously did not like to hear that. You could see them with the journalist, how much they're they're skeptical. And I I instantly thought that you probably got some of that same treatment. Absolutely. I mean, mean, they first had to vet us to make sure that we weren't spies or something. Like when we arrived just to meet them, they took Crystal Grosev, the journalist from Bellingcat's computer, and I think Navalny and Maria Pevchik. Well, so you, you and Crystal came, were kind of a package. Absolutely. And, and, and at the time that you're coming in to make this documentary, he's also coming to them with, with the theory about who the killed him. The only reason why we got in the door is like, hey, we're a film team, we want to make a movie, is because we were with Christo. And we could frame it in such a way that's like, let's make a movie about the investigation. That's how it started. It was about the investigation. And so the pitch was like, hey, listen, these events are unfolding now. Discoveries are being made every hour. Let's just start filming for history. And if you don't like us and you want to go our separate ways, you'll, you know, we can walk away and you can take the footage. And so it was a very low-risk, high-reward proposition for the Navalny camp to start working with us. Um, so we started shooting right away. And as I was speaking to... Navalny's a guy who has this really masterful command of media and of social media. And I understood that we were being weaponized. And I think that that tension between subject and filmmaker was one that we we really want to thread into the movie. At the beginning of the film, I ask him a question. He doesn't answer it. And instead, he says, make it this way. Make it a thriller. He gives me the direction. And I think that tension is threaded throughout the rest of the movie. And it culminates in the last scene when I ask him a question and he gives me an unsatisfactory answer and then I ask him a follow-up question and he really nails it and brings it home, I give him the last direction. And I think that that was really important and symbolic for that sort of meta-narrative that is um, uh, skimming the undersurface of the film. Taking into account that you aren't taking direction from him, and that's very clear to me. There is an element though about what he says, (laughs) that this is a, there is a thing here that I noticed in just the way you're filming, the way you're editing, the yeah. score. There is, and I think it's a very smart decision, even just considering what what's going on. You know that um, 
in the, what you're in the midst of, that there is a you are playing into certain conventions here in terms of um, how filmically this is going to play out. No, well, I, I would say certainly, but what I point to is the fact that the way the film feels to watch is the way the film felt to make, and that matters a lot. When we were shooting this film, we sort of fell into our own little spy thriller, this little universe that seemed like it leapt from the pages of, of, of a novel somewhere. Like it was unbelievable. And I think that the, the, the sort of thriller quality that is often, um, uh, given to this movie is really because it, it was a thriller to make and it was a thriller in real life. I point to the phone call sequence, uh, that takes place about 50 minutes into the movie. You know, people watch that scene with just this, like, the shock that is this disbelief how could this possibly have happened and been captured and that shock is how it felt to be in the room for it and so transcoding the experience of making the movie onto the experience of watching the movie for me is quite a thrilling uh, uh, directorial achievement what i had when i watched this when i've had thinking back i did see it at virtual sundance i guess right that's that's where it would have been last last january yeah. um when I, I remember the feeling that I had during that moment, which was there was a little bit of a sense of like <laughs> the floor just opened up underneath. Like this, I felt like at that moment, this guy's either going to be dead or president. You know, it just felt like it felt like it, it, it felt something very, and you could see it on their faces too, that not just, you know, the ultimate prank call of all time. Suddenly it feels yeah. there's something, it feels in, almost in terms of a piece of media that was captured, it feels like something very significant as they're about to drop this story. Is that what it felt like in the room then? Is that like, I think Christo might even said, you know, this is going to make you president, but it also had to feel like this guy just raised himself to another level of threat. Well, yeah. I mean, Chris, you have to understand, I don't speak a word of Russian. So we're oh. <laughs> shooting this sequence and I don't, I don't understand the literal words that are being spoken, the spoken language, but I did not miss a beat. I understood exactly what was happening. And it's amazing how much you can just intuitively know where to put the camera Mm -hmm. when you don't understand the language. And I think there was this sense after the phone call was completed, like the adrenaline rush that was, holy shit, that this was such a big get. This was such an, like such a score for Navalny. Here he, he is, this guy who's in a, a, essentially fighting an information battle. This is information warfare. And they got a confession from the guy who, who, who was on the kill team. And that was just so extraordinary and, and, uh, and explosive. It then became a question of how do we weaponize this? And for me, I'm like, well, we can't put it in the movie. This can't wait a year. Mm. And this, Cause this is right before the art. Isn't the article going to drop in a few hours? The article is going to drop later that day. Yeah. And so then it became, becomes these master media strategists being like, when do we drop this? And so they dropped the first story which was the existence of this kill team. Putin had his press conference a few days later, and then after that, they dropped the tape, the recording of the guy confessing to the crime. And the way that I was thinking about this in real time was that this is now like a tit-for-tat escalation, and that's what will be in the movie. So we'll release it. I'll give them the footage. They can put it on, because it was our footage. We owned it. But they can put it on their YouTube channel for the sake of the world and the Russian people needing to know what happened. And the the cause and effect of that event will be a plot point in the movie, and that's exactly how it how it played out. 
That's crazy. What, what's the woman's name? His uh, one of the woman that works for him. What's uh, Maria Pepchek. She really, she's unbelievable. How much she's on top of all of this. I, you know, I, I'm not a big presence at all on social media, and I think I made some little comment during Sunday. So she was already commenting on it, like yeah. within like five seconds. Like she's so on top of everything yeah. that it's like. Um, uh, I do want to return to this though. Yeah. That sense, because I think what you're saying here is remove the genre part for a second, though. There is a thing here about what it felt like to to be in this. Yeah. And that I think, I think if I'm hearing you right, that's inherently going to be in how you shoot it. That feeling, you know, that sense of how you are going to shoot it. But then I'm also wondering, or maybe not, I don't know. I don't know if those were conscious decisions or you're just following it. But then there is, as you're, you're working through the edit and, and doing score, I'm at, is, is that one of the things – I mean, obviously, you're trying to tell a story. You're trying to get yeah. things across. But is that something trying to – is that a guiding force of what it felt like to be in that room to a certain degree? I think I think yes. But more than anything, I knew that I wanted this to feel like a propulsive thriller. Like we had a whodunit. We had a love story. We had the, you know a natural built-in – architecture to the story because this guy is going to go back and that's what we're building to so we had just quite organically all of the the puzzle pieces to make this what would be if you wrote the story out you would pick all these pieces we had all of those elements and so it it felt very natural to try and lean into some of the tropes of this thriller genre so often nonfiction cinema tries to like it puts in like a thrillery music cue with some motion graphics and it tries to do the thriller thing. I think we see that a lot with like, you know, streamer uh, crime series stuff. But I really think for this film, we had the goods. We were in the room and it was an opportunity to, to craft a real authentic, true documentary thriller, a nonfiction thriller. And... And when we were editing the film, like I had this commitment to no fat on the bone. And the editorial team, Langdon Page and Maya Daisy Hawk, who were the editors on the film, for them, you know, that was our mandate. It's like we wanted to keep it thrilling, but we wanted to keep it propulsive and moving. And and one thing that I'm most proud when I watch the film now is just how how it moves. It's like you are on a river rafting trip and you get in the boat and you are off. And uh, to me, that is a, a really wonderful experience when you're watching a movie. You know, talking about why he might be motivated to do a film, which you've already covered, but I think that one thing that struck me was his personality as a broadcaster, which is a little bit, you know, obviously he's he's got a little little edge to him and a little humor to him as a broadcaster um, in the way he handles these stories. There's an element here, and I think it does return to the politics, but it also returns to something that's really wonderful about your your film is, is you get to see him as a man. Yeah. And obviously, um, one can't help but imagine, you know, considering what's about to happen next, this time with the family. And, you know, uh, you know, his daughter was at Stanford. I don't remember how old the boy is, um, but, I mean, she, she was, like, obviously 19 or something like that. Yeah, she was 18 when we shot the film, and Zahar was, like, 12, I think. So, I mean, and this young family, there's an element here which you were given access to. I'm sure not everything, but, I mean, there's a thing here of, like, of him as a man, but also a family. Uh, they're not an ordinary family, but they are an ordinary family facing a very, very uncertain future here. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about that part of it, because there, that is an element here that 
I think you don't have to overdo it. You instantly understand the implications, as do they, of, of what, what's happening here. Yeah, well, when we started shooting the film, Chris, I wasn't sure how much the family would be uh, a part of the story. Um, I wasn't sure how much Navalny would, would grant us access to his, his wife and his children. But what I soon found was that, like, this is how the family operated. They were just used to being on camera. The cameras were always around. They're like politicians kids and the access that we got to the family like they were all amazing like the, like everyone dasha alexei's daughter is is brilliant and emotional and just so wonderful such a wonderful presence as is yulia being sort of like this this very calm and in control woman who's just so impressive we see her in in the beginning of the movie in this kafka-esque scenario trying to see her husband in this Siberian hospital and keeping her cool. Um, and I just understood that, that this was such an important ingredient for the film. It's like, we know sort of who this guy is, but we to just see him in dad mode, he's like playing video games with his son, you know, or taking his daughter to the airport. It's like, oh, that's what's at stake here. That's both what this guy is personally sacrificing and also what he's fighting for. And I think it really, it really just puts that part of Navalny's vision and mission into perspective in a way that is like visceral and identifiable and very, very real. And I feel like as an audience member that comes even with just a uh, monochrome of understanding of what happens after the story, I think you're aware that you're seeing, at least as of right now, the, the last time that they've had these moments as yeah. a family that, you, that we're watching. The, the, the other thing that I, and I don't know how, I don't, I followed him through various news stories. I didn't know a ton about him. Yeah. Um, but there was an element, and part of this, I think, is probably through archival, too, and what, what happens at the uh, the hospital. Um, but you see, I don't know how public it is that she's clearly just a dynamo herself yeah. and just kind of like a force behind him. But you see what she does to get him out of that hospital. It was a beautiful job in the editing, too, of just feeling how much she could, you know, seeing her in action there. And it's something that I imagine you really wanted to capture in that, in that moment in terms of I, I, one, I think, has to interpret that she saves his life. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to say that making any film, finishing any film is a miracle in and of itself. And I think that the Navalny film was like 10 miracles. And one of the miracles, little miracle boxes that I opened up was seeing that footage in the hospital. Like, Who is shooting that? Is his team there? Is his team with her? His team is shooting it. Maria and Ilya, his assistant, they have their cameras out, their phones out, and they're doing a pretty good job filming it. Yeah, not bad at all. And this just speaks to like, the, the media savvy of the Navalny operation, their first instinct is to like, okay, let's shoot this and weaponize it and put it on Twitter and put it in, like have people see what's going on. It clearly also throws people back. I don't know how much you saw this in the film, but it clearly, it, it clearly weaponizes them in this moment. That's right. It's like, here's something else we can do. And when I saw all that footage, the stuff that hadn't been published, stuff that had been published, I was like, oh, we can maybe build a scene. There might, might be enough here that we can cobble together a scene out of this stuff. And I think the the editors really appreciated that instinct. Like, let's just sit in this hospital. And you feel it. You're like this lady. It, it's, it's extraordinary. It's so bizarre. Like, her husband is upstairs in a coma. They're not letting her see the husband because she doesn't have her marriage certificate. They're one of the most famous couples in the country. And it's just this, it's so bizarre. And she manages to keep her composure and continue fighting and get him out. Uh, and yeah, she saved his ass. If Yulia didn't go to that little hospital, who knows what, have, what would have happened to Alexei. And, you know, she's like 
in a way, the hero of the movie because of that. She saved his life. Maybe it was this simple, but I don't think it probably was. You know, data journalism and how they actually figured out what they did. And it's, he's very clear. You know, Chris was very, is, is very, at least the way he, he's cut in here. But there was a, it's an amazing piece of just pure exposition of how clear that is. I'm wondering if it was hard, because I imagine there's a lot of like, what'd you do? How'd you do? And I'm sure that story is also a little bit more complex than what yeah. ends up in the film. Yeah. But it, it would have been my concern of like, how are we going to make this so clear that that this is the case and, that, and, and how he got yeah. to that answer? I really appreciate that. And I take it as a great compliment because it's very complex technical exposition. Which doesn't feel that way. Right. And and that that is a is a is a wonderful challenge for the whole team, but when the events were unfolding in real time, at that point I could not explain to you what Christo was doing. I was like, yeah, he uses data somehow to like solve murders in Siberia, but that was like I didn't I didn't didn't actually know, and it was but I knew it was amazing and I knew he was extraordinary. And then as I like sat down with him, I'm like, I need you to explain this to me, like I am a golden retriever. And he took his best stab at it. And I'm like, dumb it down again. It's like one of those videos on YouTube where explaining concepts at five different levels. And I, eventually you understand. And so I sort of mapped out in my head how this would translate to cinema and how what I would see and what you would need to communicate, the, the key points to understand. Because I, it took me a while to, to even get it. So we shot the interview. And I sort of had a sense of what he needed to communicate. And even when we were shooting the interview, I was turning to the sound guy and I was like, dude, can you explain this back to me? Do you understand? I was making sure everyone in the room who had no idea was following the plot and could get it. And then we had to tr make it visual, translate it to this sort of visual world, which is language that the editorial team and the cinematographer and I sort of developed and came up with. And he's so charismatic. That's the other thing about Christo. Is he is he once he gets it, he's really good at explaining things. So he's able to distill this to its like basic Lego block puzzle piece thing and really communicate this very complex idea. And that sequence is four minutes in the movie. It's one of my favorite parts of the film. Yeah, it, it's remarkable how how well that's done, and also the fact that. Um, there's reason to also to be suspicious of him, but that it's not in the film. Do you know what I'm saying is, is you could be suspicious of him with all that complexity and who he was and, yeah. and what it is, and, and instead you in, in inherently trust him. I have to ask because it's in there, um, and rewatching it, I was reminded, <laughs> what did his wife say when she eventually saw That's so funny. So when Christo's wife... I, I, just a little context here. He admits in the film, he, to, to, to buy this information on the dark web... He admits that you know he can't do it through his foundation, so he he ends up doing it with his own funds through Bitcoin, and he estimates that he's spent one hundred and fifty thousand dollars buying data over all of his journalism, and that his wife has never, she thinks he's he's spent a couple couple G's. There's this great story that when I sent them the first rough cut or, or a fine cut or something, he watched it with his family, and just at that moment, Krista's wife Steph stood up and went to the bathroom, and they came back, and totally missed it. And so the first time she actually saw that joke in the movie was when we were in Copenhagen. She was sitting there with 750 other people. And my understanding is that she was pissed off for a second and then was so moved by the film that it sort of went, you know, just kept flowing and, and she was a good sport about it. She got to see the results of she it. She got to see the results of yeah. it. It's like, okay, money well spent. Money well spent. The world is a better place. Um, you know the return is coming. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing a lot of – I'm wondering how you braced yourself filmically to get that return. Obviously, you have, you, you have his departure, but you know, 
how much of that stuff is is having people on the plane living off the fact that people are going to have their cell phones out like yeah. i it's not, and maybe it's to your credit. It's not even clear to me that necessarily that footage is yours once yeah. once you say goodbye to him at the airport. But I'm wondering if you talk about not just how what you got and how you got it, but also I imagine it's something in the back of your head that you got to anticipate of like this is coming. We have to be ready for it, and and how you and your team kind of handle that. Well, yeah, we we had we were in the fortuitous position that we could coordinate with Alexei. So as soon as he booked his his flight home we were right there to book the seat in front and behind him and we understood that this event of him flying home was taking place in four different locations it was on the ground with his team who were in berlin watching the flight radars tracking his progress it was on the plane with him and yulia as they were flying home it was in the airports in moscow where where crowds had gathered and riot police were hauling people away and it was in Vienna with Christo Grosev, who was watching it all unfold. And I really, and I knew that I wanted the, the scene to cross cut. And, and I wanted to dip into each character and, and, and have this time and place sort of be a critical element to how the sequence plays. And so we were able to get two cameras, these two great guys who were in Berlin, who were Russian, Russian citizens with, with German passports, who are cinematographers, tough to find. That's a very niche. And they're on the plane. And they were on the plane. Uh -huh. So I met these two guys. I had about 30 minutes to brief them on what we were doing. And I was like, okay, shooter number one, how frightened are you out of 10? And he's like, seven. And I was like, shooter number two, how frightened are you? He's like, three and a half. I'm like, okay, three and a half, you're sitting in the front. <laughs> seven, you're in the back. <laughs> and they did an extraordinary job. And my directive to those cinematographers were like, if the flight is four hours door to door, you bring me three hours and 59 minutes. Mm -hmm. Like shoot everything. I want the passenger announcements. I want everything. And we understood from the ground that the plane was being held. It, it was sort of- Circling. Uh, it, was circu yeah. it was circling. And they weren't landing in, and they closed down the airspace over Moscow to try and figure out what to do with this plane. And they said that it was like a snowplow was stuck on the runway or something, which was absurd. And it was just, it felt so dramatic. It, I, again, I talk about the miracles of making a movie. This is another one of the miracles. It's like, how could this be? Ha it's just so extraordinary, like in terms of a dramatic moment. It's like they're they're they have the the plane in a holding pattern, and we don't know what's going to happen. And then they shift it to another airport, and we watch the plane go down and land. And then because it's all being broadcasted, we see the subjects of the film who are not there: Christo in Vienna and Maria and Leonid in Berlin, watching on TV as Navalny walks to passport control and gets arrested. To me, it, it just felt like this is such a remarkable documentary moment. This might be way too in the weeds, but I have, there's part of me that was, what, what kind of camera can you get on a plane? And do you have to worry, is there, an, is, how do you, is there a concern that they're gonna seize it right when they get the, the you know? The... Yeah, well listen, we had no idea what was happening. So what was gonna happen? We were like, maybe our guys will get arrested. We, we had a lawyer waiting in case that panned out. But what we understood only afterwards when the plane took off is that there were maybe, I don't know, 250 seats on that plane, and probably 175 of those seats were occupied by journalists with cameras. And that obviously provided a layer of protection for our guys. They had little DSLRs, like a Sony, you know, I don't remember know what they're called, but I, I made- The little A7 Yeah, things. the A7s yeah. that, you know, shoot pretty good in, in low yeah, light. Yeah, yeah. And, and 
you know, the direction was just get it, capture it. And I didn't, and they did such a beautiful job. Yeah. Like, like it, it, it's, it's cinema. They, they sent me back cinema and that was, I, again, just so wonderful to watch that footage, but I also had them shoot. They had dual memory card slot in the camera. And I said, um, shoot on the dual slots. So you're recording backup as we, as you go. And then when you land, before you get off the plane, pop out one of the cards and like put it somewhere safe. And they did. So the footage didn't. <laughs> the footage was safe, and uh, <laughs> they were good sports about it. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. Let's end here. Um, I, you know, I, I did see. I don't know how long ago was the little clip of him appearing. Um, you know, you could see him as a prisoner. But yeah. I, I, I wonder if you could give a little update. I mean, obviously, so much has happened with Putin and in Russia. Um, since then, but I'm wondering, you know, what do we know about what's going on with Navalny right now and, and where he is? And, and if you know, what's, how's his family? Well, Navalny, I'll speak to where Navalny is first. Uh, Navalny right now is in a gulag about six and a half hours outside of Moscow. Uh, he was moved there this summer. He is in uh, a, a solitary confinement where he has been for most of the last three months. He's in solitary for his um, anti-war, uh, essentially, activism. Even from prison, any chance he gets to speak, he is deriding and speaking up against this egregious war. Uh, and that is enough to get him sent to the most horrible solitary cell you can imagine. So he's in a really bad spot. And we don't know what's going to happen. His his attorney-client privilege has been revoked, which means he can't really communicate with the outside world. He, he used to be able to, but now it's much more difficult. Um, and, I, and his family are sort of scattered. Um, I don't really want to speak to their whereabouts, no, no, that's, yeah, but, no. but in, in terms of how they're doing, you know, everybody in that family always puts on a, a strong face. I think it's, it's the sort of like Russian way. Um, but I can only imagine you know, the internal lives of, of children whose fathers are in prison for, for this unjust reason and spouses of a political prisoner like this, it must be extraordinarily challenging. Um, but I know that this guy, Navalny, his, his courage is truly forged in steel. And if anyone can survive this ordeal, it's him and his family's bravery is right there with him. And, uh, you know, I, I really want to, be able to make the sequel to this film one day, which is about a, an election in Russia when Navalny runs for the presidency. I don't know if he'll win, but I hope he has a chance to run. Um, I think his impact on the future of Russia is unfulfilled, and uh, the world needs him to survive this ordeal and, uh, and, and help uh, take his country into the 21st century. I, I don't want to make you the, the be-all journalist here, but I, I would have to assume over the last year, his name, considering the circumstances, is only the love of the Russian people and his importance in in terms of, and even just how his na name rings out. I have to imagine has only increased over the last year. No, I th I think that's right, um, and I think you know what is keeping him safe is his uh, notoriety and his sort of fame, um, and we want his name to be synonymous with with political prisoner, um, and we believe that there's a correlation between how well-known he is and his survival and his longevity. And so that's sort of the mission we're on with this film. It's to remind the world that Vladimir Putin is not Russia and Russia is not Vladimir Putin. And Alexei Navalny is offering an alternate vision of what Russia can be. And he's offering that vision, uh, having sacrificed himself 
in this gulag, languishing, now staring down the barrel at 30 years. Uh, that's that's really really tough. But if we if you're a supporter of democracy and 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 uh, uh, justice and rule of law and and human rights, we have to support Navalny in his plight because he is speaking up against very bad people and putting his life on the line to do so. Absolutely. The one sequel that we do want in the movie theaters um, in, in, in the next year or two. Absolutely. Um, Daniel, um, the, the easiest way, right? HBO, HBO Max, HBO is, Max. Like, is a kind of yeah. like, the, that's kind of the easiest and yeah. most straightforward way for people HBO to see Max, this. HBO Max, for sure, yeah. Okay. And obviously the voters are going to get a chance to see this in, in, in um, L.A. and New York. Okay. Daniel, thank you so much and uh, congratulations on this thank one. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. This was a great chat.